0: It's the evening of March 13th, 1982, in the Belgian city of Dinam, a hundred kilometers southeast of Brussels. Shadows stretch across cobbled streets as the town settles down for the evening. From one such patch of darkness, two shapes emerge, walking quickly down the main road through town. They slow as they reach the door of the Bayard gun shop, which specializes in hunting and fishing gear. The first man glances both ways along the street, but for now, there's nobody else in sight. His partner tests the door. It's still open, and they move quickly inside. They're unprepared for the automatic bell that rings to let the store owner know he's got customers, and both hide in the corner of the hunting showroom. The owner bustles through from the workshop out back, glancing around, but when he doesn't see anyone, He assumes whoever it was had just poked their head in and left. The two men wait until they're sure he's out of sight before emerging. They know exactly what they're looking for, and it doesn't take long before the taller man holds up his prize. It's a shotgun, a Fall 10 caliber, small and compact, old, but deadly. What makes the robbery stand out is that this is the only piece they take, leaving behind dozens of other weapons Clearly, the shotgun is being taken for a specific purpose. As the two head back outside, the bell chimes again, and the puzzled owner surveys an empty shop for a second time. He heads outside, and a passerby points at the retreating pair running up the street, shotgun in hand. They've got too much of a head start on him, so he doesn't bother giving chase, just shouts after them and shakes his fists. Neither man wears a mask, though, so he gets a look at both of them as they turn to see if he's behind them. The first is in his early 30s, tall, maybe 6'4". The second is closer to 50, and around six feet. Neither face is one he recognizes, and they're around the corner and out of sight in seconds. The shop owner reports the theft to the police, but since it's such a small-scale crime, it's not exactly at the top of their priorities list. But in the weeks to come, they'll wish they had paid more attention to the seemingly innocuous robbery. It's just the first in a list of crimes that a man named Christian Bonkowski will allegedly admit to on his deathbed 30 years from now. The atrocities he claims to have carried out will leave a trail of bodies, earning him and his co-conspirators a name that will go down in Belgian history as one of the most feared gangs of all time, the Brabant Killers. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Christian Bunkowski, of the words he allegedly spoke as he lay dying. A country divided by language and politics, left reeling by a wave of violence three men who terrorized a nation, a gang with little regard for the lives of their victims, and allegations of institutional corruption that paved the way for it all to happen. I'm Stephania Haigman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Capella University's FlexPath format. You can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Belgium in the early 1980s is a fascinating political and cultural melting pot. In some respects, it's a divided nation. Even the language its people speak isn't universal, with around 60% speaking Dutch and the bulk of the remainder speaking French. It's been a long road back for a country who lost 88,000 people, or 1% of its entire population in World War II. Four decades on from that conflict, anti-Semitism still rears its ugly head. A grenade attack by a Syrian-born terrorist on a Jewish summer camp in July 1980 kills one and injures 20 more. A year later, a synagogue in Antwerp is bombed. Violence even seeps in from across the English Channel, with the Irish Republican Army claiming responsibility for a number of attacks on British soldiers based in Belgium. It's safe to say that Belgians are no strangers to violence on their doorsteps, and another wave of atrocities is about to be unleashed. It's May 10th, 1982, and the last rays of sun are retreating from the streets of Ixelles, an area to the south of Brussels. An Austin Allegro crawls along the street, the driver scanning left and right for a parking space. The day is drawing to a close, and he's had a long shift at work. He nearly misses it in the lengthening shadows, but off to his right, a space opens up between two cars, and he taps the brakes. He's so preoccupied by checking his rearview mirror as he reverses into the parking space that he doesn't spot the two men as they approach. As he turns off the engine, he hears a tap on his driver's side window. Mm -hmm. It takes a second for the driver to realize it's not a hand making the noise, but the long, slender barrel of a handgun. The man holding it has thinning black hair and a mustache to match, with a cap pulled so low that his eyes are partially masked by shadow. He instinctively glances across to the passenger side, looking for an escape route, but a second man appears blocking the door. This man has salt and pepper hair and a thin mustache and points a shotgun through the window. Neither face is familiar to him, and the driver is paralyzed by a cocktail of confusion and fear. Then, in unison, both men try to open the doors. The car rocks gently with their efforts, but both sides are locked. The first man taps a second time with his gun. Only this time, he takes a step back, arm raised, and the driver finds himself staring straight down the barrel. If this is a robbery, the driver doesn't have much worth taking. The man on his side speaks at last, telling him he has until the count of three to get out of the car. The ultimatum is delivered in French, which, luckily for the driver, is a language he speaks. He's not about to call the dark-haired man's bluff and fumbles at the lock to pop the door open. A hand reaches in, yanking him from the car, telling him to walk away and not to try anything stupid. He realizes that it's the vehicle they're after, He loves his car, but he's not about to risk his life for it, and does exactly what he's told. As he walks away, he's half expecting a gunshot, but the only sound is that of the car sputtering back to life before it tears off down the street, leaving him breathing heavily as the shock sets in, relieved to be unharmed. He doesn't know it, but he's just had a lucky escape from some of the deadliest men in Belgian history. What the thieves couldn't have known is that not only is the Allegro low on gas, but it's not in the best of health. The dark-haired man in the driver's seat is worried by the stuttering start of the engine, and even as they tear away down the street, suggests to his colleague that they need to find an alternate vehicle. By the time the owner of the Allegro is reporting the theft of his car to the police, it has already been abandoned 20 kilometers southwest the two thieves have swapped it out for a blue Volkswagen Santana, stolen from the floor of a VW showroom. Far from a random carjacking, this is a precursor to a crime spree the likes of which Belgium has never seen before. The Brabant killers now have a weapon and a getaway car, both of which they will use to grow their deadly arsenal. But police do not connect the gun store robbery and the carjacking, despite the fact that the descriptions of the thieves are nearly identical. Had they realized the link, all the horrific violence that is to follow may have been avoided. But the 80s is far from a golden era in Belgian law enforcement. Unlike the U.S., where citizens can count on national agencies like the FBI to pursue criminals across state lines, Belgian policing is much more fragmented. Local police departments operate independently of one another, despite being under the overall control of the Minister of Defense. Alongside these are the Gendarmerie, a paramilitary police force, taking their name from the French gendarme, meaning man-at-arms and operating nationally across the whole country. Christian Bonkowski is one such officer. He was born in 1952, though not much is known about his life until he joins the Gendarmerie in 1972, aged just 20. Tall, standing at about six foot four, with dark hair and a mustache, he's an imposing figure that quickly earns a reputation as a hard-working officer who gets results. Only five years in, he's rewarded with a promotion to an elite unit known as the Diane Brigade. The brigade is formed in the wake of the Munich Olympics, where a Palestinian terrorist group took members of the Israeli Olympic team hostage, eventually killing 11 of them, plus one police officer. Bonkowski has two brothers who are also gendarmes, He's seen as someone who takes pride in his work, in what it stands for. But that pride is short-lived. In 1981, he is dismissed from the brigade for accidentally discharging a weapon. While details are largely hearsay, an anonymous informant who claims to have been there says Bunkowski was twirling a pistol around his finger like a gunslinger. While he is clowning around, the weapon accidentally discharges, missing a colleague by inches. He's kicked out of the Diane Brigade, but not the gendarmerie, and is sent back to work around the city of Alst. This location will become forever linked to the Brabant killers in years to come, as the scene of their last and most brutal robbery. Those who knew Bonkowski will later say he harbored a grudge against the government from this point forward. For now, though, he puts his head down and throws himself into his job. In the 1980s, The gendarmerie is widely acknowledged to be understaffed, kitted out with outdated equipment, and underfunded. This, combined with the fact that there are no clear lines of communication between them and the local police forces, means that the system is easy to manipulate. The theft of the V.W. Santana is soon forgotten, but it turns up again three months later at another crime scene. On Saturday the 14th of August, 1982 police are called to a grocery store in the small town of Mauberge in France that sits just five miles south of the Belgian border. Police have been notified by a neighbor that the glass front door of the shop was broken. It's late and the store has long since closed, so three French officers head over to check it out. It's a small town with a little over 35,000 inhabitants and disturbances are usually minor, shoplifting or drunk settling their arguments outside the local bar. There's no way these small-town police could have predicted what they were about to walk into. As they approach the shop, they see the outline of a man by the door. He leans towards the doorway, appearing to talk to someone inside. The officers barely have time to get out of the car when a second man emerges, and both of the burglars point guns at them and open fire without warning. Thankfully, none of the officers are hit and manage to return fire. In the ensuing gunfight, the robbers make it to their VW Santana parked nearby and fire off a few more shots at the policemen while they make their escape. One officer is wounded in this final barrage, but not seriously. When the store owner arrives, they go inside to survey the damage. The two men have made off with a selection of champagne and wine, along with other seemingly random groceries like coffee. There are no real descriptions to go on other than one man being quite tall, although he wore a ski mask that obscured his face. In the aftermath, officers aren't quite sure what to make of the robbery. It seems like a lot of trouble to go to for just a few groceries and some booze. But there's nothing to suggest it was anything other than opportunistic crooks looking for a quick score. Little do they know that these men are just getting started. And the next time they surface... Not everyone will walk away from the encounter alive. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So, download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price, line. It's September 30th, 1982, six weeks after the grocery store robbery. Just an ordinary Thursday for the staff at Dequesa Gun Shop. It's nestled on a busy one-way commercial street in Wav, a small town in Belgium. Dequesa is a treasure trove of weapons for any gun enthusiast. Customers can buy everything from a handgun to an automatic rifle here. It's a little before noon, and the store owner, Daniel Dequesa, stands behind the counter, just about to close a sale with one of the two customers in the store. But before he can finish, the door bursts open and three men pile in. The handgun on the counter that Dequesa is about to sell isn't loaded, but he's willing to bet the guns that the three men are pointing at him are... One of the intruders is a tall man, medium build with chestnut hair and a mustache. He appears to be the leader, shouting at Dequesa and his customers to hit the floor. Whether it's shock or stubbornness, Dequesa and the two customers stay where they are, rooted to the spot. The tall man barks orders to the other two, and all three gunmen advance on the unarmed trio. The intruders lash out with the butts of their guns, literally beating them down to the ground their faces now pouring with blood. The fact that the men aren't wearing masks worries to Could it be that they have no fear of being seen because they don't intend to leave witnesses? The tall man looms over him, not a hint of a tremor in the hand pointing a gun into Kesa's face and tells him to stay where he is if he wants to live. The other two intruders begin ransacking the shop There's a method and purpose to it, though. They don't just grab the first guns they see. It looks to Dequesa like they are carefully selecting, like discerning shoppers rather than the robbers they are. Most of what they take are pistols, but amongst a haul of 15 weapons, there are five rifles, all of which are semi-automatic. As the men stuff the guns into bags, Dequesa hears a car pull up outside. From his position on the floor, he can see nothing but one of the robbers shouts out a warning to the other two. The new arrival is a police car, although he can only see one officer getting out. Dequesa wants to shout out a warning, but knows that if he does, he'll likely be dead before the officer can set foot in the store. Then, with no warning, one of the men smashes his gun into Dequesa's face again, shattering his orbital bone, knocking him unconscious. The lone policeman doesn't stand a chance, and as he approaches, one of the robbers opens fire. The officer seeks cover behind a nearby truck, but one of the gang keeps him pinned down with gunfire, while the other sneaks around the side. The doomed officer is trapped between the two assailants and takes a bullet to the chest. The man who fired the shot walks around, stands over the officer, and finishes him off with one more to the head. The three men jump into the same blue VW Santana that they had used to rob the grocery store in France and tear away along the main road, but their escape is far from over. Someone in a neighboring shop has called the police, and a team of gendarmes are dispatched and manage to set up a roadblock to intercept the speeding VW. They pull their cars across the road and wait, weapons drawn, as the blue car streaks towards them. It's only when the gap is under a hundred yards that they realize with horror that the robbers aren't braking or swerving. As it speeds towards them, the gendarmes throw themselves to one side at the last minute as the VW collides with one of their vehicles in a cacophony of sound. Both vehicles crumple. And before the gendarmes can recover, the three gunmen are out of the car and shooting. Their intention is clear. They're willing to go down fighting. The gendarmes return fire, And in the gunfight that follows, two of them are hit, although not fatally. Their bullets in return seem to slide past the robbers without finding a target. Even with their training, the gendarmes are outmatched and under-equipped, as the robbers use the semi-automatic rifles they've just stolen to spray enough bullets in the officers' direction to keep them pinned down. Incredibly, while the officers try to regroup, assessing their wounds, the three men climb back into the VW Santana, which, despite smoke billowing from the engine, coughs back to life and disappears down the road. The two wounded gendarmes are patched up and recover from their injuries. The officer at the gun store is not so lucky and becomes the first but by no means last fatality of the Brabant killers. The surviving officers say, when debriefed, that the robbers' tactics were well too organized to be random. It had been a strategically planned assault with echoes of the tactics that they had been taught in their own training. Daniel DeCasa and his customers give descriptions of all three assailants. Aside from the tall man that appeared to be the leader, the second man looked to be in his mid-thirties, black hair, bushy eyebrows, and a mustache. The third was more thick-set, muscular with light brown graying hair. They find the VW Santana later the same evening, doused in gasoline and set on fire in nearby woods, destroying any evidence that could have been recovered. No sign of the men or the weapons. One of the gendarmes, an officer named Campine, who chased after the fleeing Brabant killers, tells detectives he believes he identified one of the men. Campine says one of the gang was a gendarme colleague, a man called Madhani Bahush. He says Bahoosh had dark makeup on his face, but there's no doubt in his mind that it was his fellow officer. Bahoosh works out of the Uckle Gendarmerie Station, smack bang in the heart of the Brabant Killer's hunting grounds. He was originally a detective in the narcotics division, but was demoted to street patrol in 1981 after bugging a fellow detective so he could listen in on their conversations with an informant. There are also allegations that Bahush went rogue the year before the Brabant killers surfaced. Sources say he put together his own crew and moonlighted as a gangster. Bahush's whereabouts on the day of the Dequesa gun store robbery are examined. It turns out he wasn't at work that day. In fact, he doesn't have an alibi of any kind. He had called in sick. It's not clear from what's in the public domain just how hard they scrutinized Bahush but with nothing to corroborate Officer Campine's sighting, detectives aren't able to pursue him as a suspect. Despite the lack of arrests, and even with the fragmented approach to law enforcement, police are confident that the carjacking, grocery store burglary, and gun store attack were all committed by the same group. Descriptions of the getaway car and the ringleader are identical. The identities of all three men, though, remain a mystery. While authorities don't have their actual names, The men are christened with nicknames based on their descriptions. The leader, because of his height, is referred to as the Giant. The one who looks to be in his 50s is described as the old man. The third and final member of the group is dubbed the Killer for the ruthless way he gunned down the officer at the store. Collectively, they're dubbed the Gang of Brabant, or the Brabant Killers, after the region most of their crimes take place in. The gang goes to ground for a few months, only breaking cover for their last robbery of the year. And when they do, it's one of their most brutal. It's the morning of December 23rd, and Mark Van den Ainde goes to check in on his elderly father, Joza, who is a caretaker at the Het Castiel Inn, next door to the Beersel Castle. Mark had gotten his father the job when he used to work there himself as a chef at the inn's restaurant. Mark's wife and kids are in the car with him, ready to spend the day at a nearby Christmas market after visiting Joza. Usually, Joza waits on the front stoop when Mark comes to pick him up. But as they arrive, Joza is not there to greet him. He beeps the horn, but even after the echoes have died away, there's no sign of his father. Mark has a set of keys, so decides to head up to the room his father has inside the inn, thinking maybe he's still asleep. He trudges upstairs, knocking on the bedroom door. No answer. Mark pushes the door open and recoils at what he sees. Joseph Vandeninda is lying on his side in bed, naked, with his wrists bound behind his back with a scarf. Mark will later learn that his father had been dead for several hours before he arrived. The cause of death, multiple gunshot wounds, seven in total, all to the head. Mark also sees bruises around his father's face as if he was beaten before being shot. This, combined with cigarette burns to his chest, are confirmation that Vanden Einda had been tortured. When police arrive, the early theories are that Jose was killed because of his links to far right-wing activist groups. He had fought in the Spanish Civil War on the side of the fascist General Franco, who would go on to become the dictator of Spain. Aside from any political motives, what catches the police's attention and makes them wonder if the Brabant killers are behind the murder is when they discover what has been stolen from the inn's restaurant. Champagne, wine, and coffee. The same items that were taken in the grocery store robbery. Forensics will not conclusively link Jose's killing to the Brabant killers for years to come, but it's added to the list of crimes police believe is the work of the same gang they're already seeking for a growing list of crimes. The Brabant killers don't wait long to claim their next victims. On January 12th, 1983, police are called to check on a black Mercedes that has been abandoned on the side street in Brussels. When they pop open the trunk, they find the body of 58-year-old taxi driver, Angelou Constantine. He's been there for several days, having last been seen four days earlier. He has been shot multiple times in the back of the neck. His taxi sign has been ripped from the roof of his car and stuffed in the trunk next to him. There are rumors that Constantine has criminal ties, links to the drug trade and auto theft, but nothing is ever proven. It's apparent that the vehicle has been used between the last sighting of Constantine and discovery of his body, presumably by a person or persons who needed a vehicle not linked to themselves. Again, the police don't immediately peg this as the work of the Brabant killers. The forensic proof will follow years later when they recover the gun that fired the shot and match it to the crimes they know for certain the gang are responsible for. For now, the more popular theory is linked to Constantine's alleged ties to the criminal underworld. The continued lack of communication between local police and gendarmes means that vital information, like the ballistics report in Constantine's murder, is not being shared across forces, a fact that lets the gang continue their work unchecked. Over the next five months, four more robberies occur, all at supermarkets, mostly from the Delhaize chain. The Brabant killers establish a routine. Two of them take the manager to the back room where they force him to open up the safe and hand over the money while one handles crowd control. The cash taken from each store is in the ballpark of 15 to $20,000 per heist. While the gang is still heavily armed, most end with people being shaken by their experiences, but not harmed. The one exception is the store manager at a store in Al, west of Waterloo. He is found dead in a back office, shot in the head after having opened the safe for the gang allegedly by the gang member known as the killer. Then, the Brabant killers drop off the radar all summer, almost as if they've taken a vacation. A team of three detectives that has been investigating the DeCasek gun store robbery produces their first report in July 1983. Their view is that it was a targeted robbery specifically aimed at stealing a prototype silencer that was amongst the missing items. One of the witnesses overheard one of the Brabant killers saying, okay, let's go, we have what we want. The bespoke silencer, made to fit Ingram's submachine guns, feels to investigators like a unique enough item to warrant the comment. Their interest in this particular item makes investigators believe that perhaps the Brabant killers are more than just organized criminals. Dequesa's expertise was in high demand, and he had a number of international customers. An arms broker, Willy Portois, had allegedly been acting as a middleman between Dequesa and Lebanese clients on the silencer deal. In addition, Portois has links to International Security Associates, a firm based in New York, which represents an unnamed Colombian client also interested in the new silencer. Portois is a known paid informant for the Surette, Belgian Intelligence, And this, plus the involvement in the New York firm, leads some to speculate that American intelligence, as well as the Surrette, may have hired the Brabant killers to steal the silencer. DeCasa had halted production of the silencers when he didn't receive the money he was promised. Detectives speculate that it was stolen so it could be mass produced. It's all speculation though, without substance, like much of the entire investigation so far. More straightforward, localized theories abound, some fueled by comments from the gendarmes whose roadblock they rammed into. They're organized, efficient, ruthless when needed, and operate like a trained unit. Could there be any truth in the speculation that the Brabant killers have links to the police or armed forces? Men like Christian Bonkowski, who had a known ax to grind against senior law enforcement for kicking him out of an elite unit. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. The Brabant killers continue to evade capture, but they're not just content to rest on their laurels. The levels of violence are set to rise, while public confidence in the authorities' ability to track them down is eroded with each fresh attack. With each audacious robbery, rumors run rampant that these are no ordinary band of criminals. And when Christian vonkovsky confesses on his deathbed that he was the man known as the giant, police are forced to confront the possible truth that some say they've been avoiding, or even covering up. Could these horrific attacks be the work of men they have served alongside? And if true, how are they allowed to operate for so long and leave so many bodies in their wake? Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Rob Scrag. Supervising editor Kevin Pham. Sound design by Matthias Torresole. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Matthias Torresole and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.